Welcome everyone to the Q4 2021 Horse for Good Fund Investor Donor Update. And um, here with, uh, I'm Ryan Honeyman from Lyft along with Kevin Bayuk and uh, Janie Kasson is also a chess um, for Community Venture and Janie Kasson Consulting. And uh, we're super excited to have you all here today. Um, so let's kick off the agenda. So we kind of, the intro is now, and then we're, we're having um, a couple amazing investees uh, present East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative, Community Services Unlimited, and the Guild. Um, at the, towards the end, we're going to do a total portfolio update, and then um, we'll have some time for open Q&A. But if folks want, you can always pop in questions to the chat. So we sometimes do this just to remind everyone you know, we raised 1.1 million, uh, you know, now it's been, gosh, I think it was 2016 when we did the, the original WeFunder. So in five years, that's wild. Um, 13 investments, 77% um, majority women owned and 85% person of color owned. And you've seen the list before, but just as a reminder, so again, we're gonna have East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative present CSU, and the guild. Um, and these are some of our other investees that we can also speak about briefly. Um, so Ojan, if you're good, I'm gonna, <clears throat> I'm not a huge fan of playing videos on webinars, but this is a very short one and it's really amazing. And so Ojan and I thought that we would just play it and then he would add some context and color commentary. Um, so I'm gonna go ahead and play. And Kevin, if you could give me like a thumbs up if you can hear. That's what I, that's what I, okay, so I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna okay. do it. Ready? I am Noni Session. I'm a third generation West Oaklander and one of the founding staff members and executive director of the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative. Today, we are at Liberation Park um, for the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative third annual member meeting. This year, it's an open member meeting and a land liberation celebration, celebrating our historic acquisition of the Esther's Orbit Room along the 7th Street Corridor in West Oakland. The East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative, as a black and people of color-led, multi-stakeholder co-op, knows that there is no shortage of vision in our community. What there is a shortage of is resources, and in fact, non-extractive resources. So we galvanize uh, low interest and um, um, non-extractive investment. We help build out land and housing real estate projects. Uh, we tap black and brown leaders who want to support the search, the fundraising, the acquisition, and the long-term asset management of those land and housing acquisitions, and we give it to them because we know that Oaklanders know what Oaklanders need. And then with this is over room, I'm just so excited to, to get the keys and to be able to vision with folks in the space. Um, 
you know, and seeing the, the legacy Oaklanders who have memories of Esther and of being in that space, being able to come and remake it into their own space that we can, you know, help make that vision a reality. That's really what we're doing here. So the minimum investment is a thousand dollar share, but we actually let people pay it off with a payment plan. So I think our, you know, our minimum invested to date is like a hundred dollars per person. Anyone in California and now in 12 other states can buy a share in EVPREC or more shares um, at $1,000 and those shares go into our general fund which we invest in various projects like, um, like Esther's Orbit Room which is you know, a mix of commercial and residential um, property. And you know, those investments um, really make it possible for us to keep the properties affordable uh, and community owned. So it's, it allows folks to take their money out of Wall Street or out of the bank and invest it in community. We are reviving the historic asset Esther's Orbit Room under the name the Esther's Orbit Room Cultural Revival Project. Um, we're bringing to market, uh, because of the impact dollars that you yourself have invested in this vision, we're bringing to market four commercial footprints at 50% of market rate, a cafe, a bar, a performance venue, a fine arts gallery, a movement arts gallery, and um, we're trying to figure out how to create a resource for the kids too because we're using Esther's as the jump off point to reground a community into the West Oakland corridor. And Esther's is the first step in acquisitions in the flats of West Oakland. And it is the pilot project of our $50 million land and housing acquisition fund. Invest today. Yes, love that video. And so now we have Ojan. Um, yeah, Ojan, you wanna add any more? Like, I'm not sure how long ago that video was recorded, it seems pretty recent, but yeah, any would love to hear other updates and, and sure stuff thing. from you as well. Yeah. yeah, thanks so much for having us, Ryan, everybody. Um, our resident fundraising director. Um, that movie was, most of the footage there was from our member meeting this summer um, that we had at Liberation Park on Juneteenth weekend. Um, and, you know, as I said there, I was so excited to have the keys and be in Esther's and I'm finally here, we've got the keys in the space right now so as Noni mentioned there's like six or there's four different commercial footprints here and I'm in one of them there's this old school deli space which we're probably going to open up and and expand the bar which is back here to make this more of a bar restaurant feeling so I'm not going to give you all the whole tour but just wanted we're so excited that we're like actually here now this is a reality um so at the beginning of the month or actually at September 30th, um, and it's to see this vision become a reality. Uh, we, I just got off a call with um, Prescott Reeves, who's a local architect, who's actually the president of um, SF NOMA, which is the Architects of Color Association throughout the whole country. Um, and he's gonna be supporting us on some, a series of community design sessions, a lot of our own internal design processes with our members, um, but we really want to do a robust uh, process to inform the design here to at the programming aesthetics and the, the actual spatial design is somewhere where the community is, is feels themselves represented and they want to want to be here, right? We want to make sure we make a space that they want to um, be present in and thrive in. So we're really excited about uh, sort of that next step in this process. Um, and yeah, I, I guess I want to pass it over to Annie to talk a little bit about the, the financing behind Esther's um, and then we'll talk a little bit about our upcoming projects.
Thanks, Ojan. Hi, everyone. Can you hear me okay? I'm Annie McShiris. I'm EBPREX uh, Fundraising and Investment Director. And yeah, it's a really exciting time to update you all right now. We we just closed on Estridge Orbit Room, um, where, where Ojan is sitting at this moment. And um, it's it took it's taken a lot for us to get there. Um, it's it's been a really exciting time. Um, our our, our full raise for Esther's is actually $4.9 million. Um, and we were able to close escrow with, um, with a, a substantial acquisition loan from a mission aligned funder um, that supported us with a 0% loan at uh, $1.7 million. Um, so we were able to actually close escrow with that, um, with that mission aligned loan, with that non-extractive funding. Um, and then the, the remainder of our raise um, is has been made possible through uh, an integrated capital stack um, that that we've been able to galvanize community support around. We've been able to galvanize um, philanthropic support as well as a, a few other low interest loans. Um, but very significant to our ability to raise these funds, which which we talked about in the video, um, was the qualification that we received from the SEC to do a direct public offering at a national level. Um, we received that qualification about a year ago and have been galvanizing um, the support of, of investors across the country. Um, we now are qualified in 14 states, including the District of Columbia. Um, and of course, the state of California is our, you know, our most substantial and, and biggest supporting state um, and have been able to galvanize nearly a million dollars um, in, in equity funding through our direct public offering. Um, and I, I just sent a link uh, for, for y'all to learn more about Esther's. Um, I also am gonna send this link for our offering circular so that anyone who's interested in, in learning more about the offering and what we um, what the risks and rewards are can go ahead and take a look at our offering circular that I just popped in the chat there. But I think sub substantial to this is just the ways that we've been able to grow and, and move our work um, through all of this tremendous community support, which wouldn't have been possible without the direct public offering qualification. It would have been possible without people like you all uh, here today who, who were like some of our first investors in uh, this vision for, for what, what EBPREC could do um, in terms of like taking real estate and putting it back, to, back into the hands of community and taking it off the speculative market. Um, so Esther's is our largest project to date. We're really excited that we were finally able to close escrow. Um, our, we, we have a full... Um, fundraising goal for the, the revitalization, construction, community programming, community design aspects of the work uh, of $4.9 million. And we're currently about $600,000 short of that goal. Um, and so we're still in full fundraising mode to reach that goal, which will allow us to do a full revitalization, complete construction, and you know have, have the space like really ready to be open for the community and the public over the next two to three years. Um, and so we've, we've already raised about 4.2 million. We're about $600,000 shy of our, um, or we've raised 4.3 million. We're about 600 shy of, of the 4.9 million goal. And yeah, it's just a really, really exciting time for us in terms of um, building out this multi-stakeholder cooperative and uh, a mixed use uh, space in Esters, um, which all of our other properties that we've acquired to date have been residential. Um, so we've got also exciting plans for what's next. And I'm, I'm gonna pass it over to Ojan to tell you more about some upcoming acquisitions that we're hoping to add to our portfolio. Thanks, Annie. We were playing a little ping pong today. 
Um, so since this is the Force for Good fund update, I wanted to let you all know um, we are, it looks like we're gonna close our, our year out with like over a million dollar cash surplus. Um, that's sort of in our operating budget for next year. And so we're expecting to be able to complete all of our upcoming payments on the Force for Good Fund loan. Hooray. I know you'll have a loan loss reserve, which is wonderful, um, but I'm happy to just share that we're, looks like we're gonna be able to pay that back in full. Um, and, you know, just like your original investment in EVPREC, like before we had anything, right, um, has allowed us to come to this stage. The projects that we've done to date are really, allowing us to expand even further. So having secured esters, um, getting some more articles out in the newspapers um, is really like, you know, pushing our story and our vision even further. So upcoming projects that we're looking at, um, on this, this block right now, the same seller who sold us this property, he owns 26,000 square feet uh, vacant property right on the corner, like two parcels down. So um, there's a $2 million price tag on that. Uh, which we're looking at because this whole corridor is getting gentrified. And now that we have this foothold here, getting more control of this block for community ownership is, is a real dream of ours. So um, that's one, one dream uh, in our, our waterway. Um, and then we're also looking at a lot of residential properties in Fruitvale and in East Oakland. A lot of folks from single family homes and duplexes are reaching out to us. Um, and then we're also hoping to do like a 10 to 20 unit building. You know, there's so many single family homes and duplexes in Oakland. That's why there's a lot of inquiries there, even though they're a little more challenging to do financing wise because of the cost per unit. But we're trying to see what we can make work. Um, so those are some of the, the projects that are coming up. Um, and yeah, is there anything else you want to share, Annie? Yeah, I mean, I think as Ojan said, we we've come a long way. We've been really bullied by community support. Um, it's been a tremendous outflow of of generosity that we've seen come in for 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 Esther's Arbor Room um, and our ability to raise four point three million dollars over the course of the last year plus um, to support this project. And we have ambitious goals moving forward. Um, I think the success of Esther's has shown us what's possible in terms of crowdfunding and, and community led both real estate development and um, finance um, and what's possible with um, with the dollars of hundreds of our, we have over 300 investor owners at this point, um, along with a number of institutional investors. And um, yeah, sky's the limit. We're actually looking to expand our fund to support the kinds of acquisitions that Ojan's talking about right now uh, to a 10 to $20 million fund over the next several years. We have the ability through our SEC qualification to raise a $75 million fund. Um, and so we we're looking to, to scale and expand and, and bring in new investor support um, for all of, the, all of the other exciting projects that we have down the pipe. Um, the empty lot that Ojan mentioned, a few other residential projects, um, wanting to support um, uh, wanting to support residents in East Oakland who are in danger of who've already already been displaced and who are um, which area has been you know Fruitvale and East Oakland areas are rapidly gentrifying. Um, so looking to to be able to expand our fund to support um, more quick acquisitions. Um, the the Esther's acquisition, we were able to negotiate. Um, you know, a long period of time where we could bring the financing in and do or do our due diligence on the property. Uh, so we had about a six to eight month period where we actually were, were doing due diligence before we closed. Um, but that's not typical for real estate in the Bay Area. It's it's a much hotter market than that. We got really lucky with 
with Esther's and being able to have such a long period of time um, between between like looking at and and scoping out the project and closing on it. Um, but that's not going to be the case for a lot of these other properties that um, resident owner groups are coming to us wanting to purchase. Um, so we're really looking to scale up our fund, which would support acquisitions that come up quickly um, with resident owner groups, with tenants that are organizing to be able to stay in place and um, reverse displacement in their communities. Um, and so again, I, I put, put in the offering circular link, but y'all have been so supportive of the work we've done to date. And if you are interested in continuing to help us expand and scale to the next level, to what next is possible, uh, we welcome your support and please reach out to myself and Ojan and, and we'd be happy to, to connect with you and think creatively about how to, to fill out our integrated capital stack for all the other hopes and dreams that the community has for um, community-owned real estate and taking real estate off the speculative market. So I'll, I'll leave it there and I'll welcome any questions that, that folks have. Thank you so much, Annie. Yeah, I just and wanted John. to say thank you too. I feel like over half the people on this call have already been supporting us in so many ways. We've reached out with our questions like to a lot of y'all and you're, you're always there for us. So thank you so much. You know, one thing that I'm excited about is you, you were mentioning scale, you know, like typically scale in traditional investing is like how much money can we concentrate into like old white guys hands is usually like what scale means. Um, whereas this is like $75 million fund to like take real estate off the speculative market, right? And like put it back in community control. So that's like, it's the first time I've associated scale in like a positive sense. So I just wanna appreciate you for for doing that, for doing this work. Yeah, so folks can put in any questions in the chat or unmute. Possibly everyone's just Stunned. Oh, John, how, how many worker <laughs> how many how many worker owners are on the staff collective? Just for um, just so people can think of that. Yeah, um, Annie actually just became our fourth uh, staff owner um, about a month ago, and we have two other candidates who are on staff right now. And after a year, they'll um, they'll be up for worker ownership. Yeah, we have um, about 130 community owners and um, almost 300 investor owners. So we're growing. Arno's asking, when's the next meeting at Esther's? We actually have um, our first gathering at Esther's because we had to like, you know, do some, some safety code upgrades and electrical sort of danger fixes right away. Um, our first gathering with our community owners is tomorrow. Um, so I don't know if you're a community owner or no, but I'll, I'll send you the invite um, if you didn't get it already. Um, and then we're going to be having a lot more like in November, December, sort of community design sessions that are open to the broader community. But we still have a little bit more um, safety upgrades before we can have like public events here, like putting panic doors on on these old school fixtures we have here. Oh, I see. And Arno's asking when we're going to have the next uh uh force for good fund donor investor meeting at Esther's good one Arno yes we we will uh -huh. endeavor to do that uh maybe maybe uh next spring or whenever we'll talk we'll to we'll talk to these people right. yeah yes <laughs> thank you
have one quick question to throw in, you know, and then we'll maybe move to Neelam's uh, presentation. But um, as you're thinking about scaling the amount of capital you're raising, are you starting to like touch into capital that's maybe feeling like, oh, I wonder if this is as mission aligned as like the earlier, like the really sort of early stage stuff? Or have you noticed, like, how are you able to maintain your alignment as you still raise more and more money? It's an interesting one. Um, I think we're still figuring out like what is aligned and what isn't internally and externally. Um, even the the PRI that we're getting from San Francisco Foundation, right? It's a two percent interest only own loan for five years with a thirty year amortization after that. Um, so it's great terms uh, compared to the zero percent loan we got from Restorative Economies Fund for this project. It is not as great, and they're you know, the loan documents are 45 pages long with like very conventional construction loan terms in there um, and like pretty strict, um, you know, default criteria and imme immediately the ability to accelerate the loan 100%. So there's, you know, there's terms that are aligned, there's terms that aren't, they have, you know, the fund that it's coming from dictates how flexible they can be with us. So. I guess that's just an example of how it's like it's been pretty confusing. Um, you know, some of these, some of the funds that are, you know, they're really aligned in certain ways, and then there's also certain elements of their their loan structure that are are challenging to work with. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I might just add, um, it is, it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing. Um, conversation and piece of the work to do um, not only to work to transform the real estate system, but also the financial system and the ways in which um, the ways in which we're trying to galvanize non extractive funding and what does non extractive funding actually mean. Um, and there are plenty of funders out there who talk about being a non extractive funder who use that language um, and then are unable to actually, you know, when push comes to shove when the devil's in the details and we're 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 wading through. Um, pages and pages of legalese and um, you know um, restrictions and covenants and all of that um, come come to learn that it's not as a not it's not it's not really not extractive um, and I think it's a challenge to the field to really dig into um, how are we showing up um, both with the dollars that we have to contribute but also in the in the how in the way the process the way in which we are deploying those dollars the way in which um the communities that we're looking to support really do have um a sense of power and agency in the process of receiving funds um and that's just an ongoing challenge and i think any financial institution um has, has a certain way of doing their due diligence and underwriting that um, borrows from you know the big banks um ultimately and so i think um it's it's a part of the work and it's a part of the continuing continuing work that we're all doing to try to, to move the field um move the financial field and the real estate field to a more um, community oriented um, and um, empowering place um, for for community members themselves and for folks that are on the front lines that have the most to lose um, from from an extractive loan from a predatory loan um, so yeah it's an ongoing question <laughs> and also as we talk about scale and as we talk about wanting to grow our fund um, we are coming. We, we are coming into conversation with some of the larger, larger funders that have more 
um, you know, that have billions of dollars to wield? And what would it look like for them to come into a relationship with a grassroots uh, community-based real estate developer like us? And how can we kind of work together to, to partner to shift um, the relationship that we're building? So much, Annie. I know, John. Okay. Um, so I'm wondering, just you know, wanting to respect uh, Neelam and Avery's time because I've sort of given them some time slots to start. So I'm wondering if we could move to CSU. And um, yeah, so Annie and I think Ojan had already put in like contact information and like you know East Bay Prex website and offering. Um, which we can also send out again after along with the recording but um just wanted to um appreciate you both for showing up and the great work that your team's Thanks doing for having us yeah cool thank you thanks so much and um great so i'm gonna pass to neelam and i i think um you know um uh, for Neil, I think it's similar, like um you know, maybe I don't know how much detail <laughs> that's a great question, like how much detail to go into. I think whatever feels right to you, um I guess it would just be general like sort of updates on um you know, obviously the the CDFI. I don't think anyone here is most folks haven't heard that shift. Um and then um you know, sort of any plans for the future, just, I'm sure that it will sort of be um, a flowing conversation, but if, yeah. Okay, Yeah. great. Well, hi everyone. Um, thank you for that great um, presentation just now. It was really interesting to learn about what you're doing in the East Bay. Um, so um, the work that the fund supported that we are doing is a project in South Central Los Angeles. Um, where we were supported, actually it was the first money that came in as a loan to um, help the, um, the redevelopment of the Paul Robeson Community Wellness Center, which includes a food hub. Um, and um, so that, that all happened, you know, that was built, opened in August, 2018. Um, there's loads of information about that on our website if anyone's interested um, who's new to this. Uh, so I won't kind of go on about that because there's a lot, a lot that can be said just about that process in, in itself. Um, but I think that maybe what might be interesting to folks who do know something about the history a little bit and, and also might be interesting in this moment that we're in is, so just to quickly say, obviously like everybody else, so we've opened the center, we were kind of running our food hub, which includes a market and a commercial kitchen. It also includes lots of other community spaces. Um, and, you know, we were beginning to kind of do really well and stuff was happening. And then, of course, COVID hit. Um, so that affected us like it affected everyone. Um, but we were able to kind of pivot like a lot of people were. And um, we did um, literally kind of over one weekend set up um, uh, an entirely online ordering system and delivery system, which we were going to do anyway. But obviously, you know, COVID pushed us to make that happen quickly. And so actually our, our kind of regular sales weren't impacted as much as they would have been. I mean, they were, but not as much as they would have been because we were able to do that. And because we were one of the few sources of local food in the neighborhood. So that kind of, you know, helped with that. Um, 
and um, all, but it did impact our overall kind of running because we weren't, for example, making money on the rental of the spaces, which we've begun to make a fair amount of income on, um, and we're not able to invite people into the commercial kitchen space and so forth. So all of that happened. Anyway, we've re since we've reopened, we continue to do all of our online stuff, we continue to do all of our community programming, including um, you know, CalFresh assistance and also CalFresh training for other organizations. Um, but I think that what might be interesting for folks is how um, this local, you know, we've been so embedded for the last kind of 20 years, really, in all the work we've been doing has kind of led to the creation of this, um, this wellness center and this food hub. You know, we're still doing other things we were doing, and this is kind of on top of that, but this has definitely kind of been, been many, many years of work that has led to this. Um, you know, but what's interesting is that there's been this kind of process that has also happened where we've been involved nationally in, in the food justice scene, you know, um, have known lots of people, been to lots of events, have been part of kind of making changes in that scene, right, in terms of uh, its representation of BIPOC folks and, and how things in our communities are talked about and so forth. Um, and as part of that, we've kind of built what is really the first kind of the first um, activist, the first field-led collaborative of people who've actually been doing this work for a very long time. And our, our own local work has really informed this process of the creation of this national strategy for EFOL, Equitable Food Oriented Development, which folks you can go, and I'll put the website in the chat in a minute, but um, there's a whole website about it. We are now kind of um, working with other organizations around the country to leverage what we've learned locally and to kind of really encourage the building of this, this kind of um, uh, food-based economy in local communities like ours, right? But, you know, that's not what I want to talk about because that's, that's national work. But what I mentioned that to say that what's interesting is how that has now come again full circle and how in doing that work and in building the, lo the local center, you know, one of the things we've talked about for a long time is how our communities are really impacted by processes like gentrification. Um, and one thing we've been in conversation about for a long time is how do we as a very humble and modest nonprofit, you know, how do we impact like, these processes? Because they, they are, they're huge and they're, they're, they're so complex and there's so many things that are going on that make them happen, right? So we've been, we've been in conversation about this. And so what we've, what we've kind of decided to do, what we've been doing the last few months we've been working on is CSU has been partnering with um, a guy called Dane Pascal, who actually was on our, on our staff for about 12 years and then left to go do some um, kind of retail investment kind of work because that's what that's what he's that's what he's into, and um, has. But we've continued to work with him, and he has created this entity called Conscious Capital Investments. So now, and so CSU, we've been partnering with him for some time to do things like offer trainings in our communities, folks, on how they can get ready to buy property, how, can, how they can fix their credit, you know, these kind of basic things, right? But that partnership has kind of grown and we are now 
really looking at buying. So, so this is going to be used to you guys. Um, we just purchased in partnership with um, Conscious Capital Investments. We just purchased another property on our block. Um, I mean, we are a very small stakeholder in that. Like we have a 10% ownership and, and let's see, Conscious Capital Investments has 90%. But, you know, we did it because Conscious Capital Investments is kind of on the same page in terms of social justice and all these other things, right? And we are in conversations with some other folks now about essentially working to, to, to buy that whole block, right? And the purpose of doing this, and, and so as part of that process, we are becoming a CDFI because we don't, we don't, it's not, not just, we're not only doing this because we want to be a property owner, that's not the purpose of this. We don't care about owning property, but the purpose of it is to stop all the property in South Central being bought by people who are buying it and hoarding it. You know, USC is a big player in, in that game. They've, they've been buying lots and lots of property in the last, particularly the last decade and just holding onto it. Um, but more importantly, because by building the Paul Robeson Center, we have also been able to build our work to support small local food-based entrepreneurs, right? So that's been part of having a commercial kitchen there. And what we're finding is, is that as we're helping these, these entrepreneurs kind of develop their business plans and develop their ideas and develop their recipes and so forth, you know, many of them, some of them are ready to kind of set up the business in a location and they can't afford any of the locations like right so part of the purpose of this is for us to kind of act as this as this body that that isn't doing this in the way that most you know property holders do it to make to make money for themselves or to make money for an entity like for outside shareholders or whatever but to do it so that yes we can make some money you know a, a humble like amount that will support the work that we do but we're doing it so that we have places to put entrepreneurs we can, we can also build some low-income housing in the process, and we can really, really help to kind of, um, to, to use what we've learned from building the center to actually help other folks then become owners of their own businesses and the properties. You know, what we, what we ultimately hope to build is a, a rent-to-own kind of scenario right where so so we're not trying to hold on to the ownership of these places we're trying to pass them on um but yeah but I, I thought i mean i thought that might be something you guys might be excited to know about that that is that is an area of moving into it's still very very early days we've still got tons of work to do but you know this is how kind of the Paul Robeson's and we never envisaged this and it's interesting how these things kind of work right like Building the center helped us to be part of building EFOD. Building EFOD and building the EFOD fund has then helped us come back from circle and say, well, actually, you know what? We need a South Central Economic Development Fund, which is what we are creating to actually just really take, you know, we don't, we don't want to be the only kind of player. We don't want to be the only people on that block who bought this property and it looks beautiful and people come and buy food and blah, blah, blah. But we want to develop the entire block. All the streets, you know, we want this to kind of uh, just spread. So yeah, so that's what that's what we're doing. That's what we are. Any questions? <laughs> it's amazing, Neil, and thank you for that. Very similar to what East Bay Prec is doing around like a hub, but then also other pieces of property in the same area. 
Yeah, you might want to jump in with questions. It's actually really exciting to see the, the East Bay PREC and then Neelan, thanks for sharing what CSU is doing. And once we hear from Avery about Guild ground cover and Avery posted that black paper, I think uh, it's, it's interesting to see the variance, but the same message, you know, community self-determination, reliable housing as a human right, place as a human right, community determination of place, um, yeah, real asset, community wealth building. There's different approaches, different themes, and, and uh, they're synergistic. And we're in this interesting experimental time, and it's great to see that growth into that area, Neelam. Um, I'm kind of curious how, how the market's going as well. I mean, I, I know you said there's details on the website, but just how things are going with the, the food, um, just any details, how, you, how you're feeling about that. But um, we don't have to dwell on that. I, I like where, where the, the expansion as well. We could talk about that more. I'm sure Arno and other people with banking backgrounds might have interesting uh, commentary on CDFI maybe or, or a strategy to share, but that might be beyond the scope of today's call as well. Don't want to put you on the spot, Arno, or either. Um, but uh, um, yeah, curious maybe if there's anything you want to say about the BMP and, and how the food is going. Yeah, the market has gone from strength to strength. I mean, especially because, like I said, during COVID, we were pushed to set up the online kind of ordering. And there are folks who are still doing that. Who said, you know, now that we've got it, they're sticking to that. And, and also that, that forced us to create a website exclusively for BMP, which we didn't have before. So we now have, I think we've sent you guys uh, that before, but we have a, a website that is just for BMP, where you can go online, you can order, and you can, you know, interact with BMP in different ways. Um, and, and now we also, the market is reopened, so a lot of folks are very happy to be back, to be coming into the market, um, where the number of businesses we're working with is growing, you know, in terms of us helping them, helping to develop like the other local businesses. Um, the number of local businesses that we are purchasing from is growing, uh, both in terms of, I mean, we've always, as you know, we've always purchased our food. There's always been purchased from local growers. That's, that's just a given. But um, even in terms of kind of other, um, you know, products, uh, skincare products, uh, health products, teas, all this kind of stuff, we're growing, we're purchasing from more and more local kind of entrepreneurs and baked goods. We now have, um, someone uh, who we buy from who bakes locally. So, you know, at one point we were baking, we were doing the baking, but actually it's really great that we're not doing that. And we've got someone else who's doing that who we buy from now. Um, so yeah, so it's all, I mean, it's all, it's great. It's, it's just going, you know, I mean, I mean, it's gonna take a bit of time to recover from the COVID kind of lockdown. You know, that's, that's something, the reality that everyone's dealing with, we're dealing with that. Our numbers still haven't gone back up to pre-COVID in terms of working customers, but we envision that will happen. You know, um, it's just it's just a matter of time. And we have begun because it all kind of goes hand in hand. You know, one thing helps the other, helps the other. But we have begun to do some of our other activities, the yoga classes, and you know, the, the uh, which we weren't doing any of those in-person things during COVID. So those have restarted slowly and and are. We're having a, a monthly wellness day that we've been doing for the last couple of months, and that's going really well. Um, yeah. Well, it's a good thing. Thanks, Neil. Yeah, thanks, Neil. It's quite remarkable from um, 
you know, it's, it's really fascinating and inspiring to see the projects that you're involved with and, you know, some of the other investees where it's moving to, you know, <clears throat> ownership, land ownership, and also like the financial, it's like actually like taking, instead of being sort of subject to owners and who has the finance, it's like, let's actually create our own ownership and our own financial tools to sort of build this next economy. So um, it's probably not something you necessarily were like, I'm going to be a, like having a CDFI, like you maybe never thought of that, you know, early on, but it's, it's really fascinating. Well, it's actually interesting. We did, we, we thought about oh. becoming a CDFI about 10 years ago. We did think oh, wow. about it and we looked at it and it was horrific. The process at the time. I'm not saying it's, it's great now. It's still, it's still complicated, but it's actually, they have made some pretty big changes. It's a lot easier now to go through that process than it was 10 years ago and we've got a lot more experience under our belt now and also we, we particularly wanted to become a CDFI because in in some of the work that we're doing through EFOD and I mean you guys know in, in the stuff we talk about about the the financial system about the way that you know loans are made and the way that there is complete inequity in how money does not get to our communities, right? Um, and, and in that, we have a critique of CDFIs, right? And so our thought has been, well, to really understand and to really, we need to, we should become a CDFI so we can kind of really understand that system and know where are the points that we can really push for change, you know, um, that makes sense. And, and as an insider, as somebody actually operating within that system, we will, we will know what that looks like. It's a little bit different criticizing it from the outside than from operating it and kind of knowing. And, and also partly because, you know, in, in building these businesses, it's not just about, um, you know, having um, physical spaces to put them in, but it's also about we want to be able to raise funds to lend them money so that they can actually operate, you know. Um, But we never, we never, that, we didn't think we were going to do it. I mean, we tried, we looked at it and then we left it alone. And then it's funny how things just come back. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Neelam. Um, and <clears throat> would you put in like any, like your email or um, anything oh, in the chat that folks? Um, yeah. Great. Um, It looks like um, yeah, sorry. Yeah, it looks yeah. like Annie had actually asked about to hear about partnership with conscious capital. Is that advisor or investors? And do you like have a link to their website um, for? Um, so actually, conscious capital investments does not have a website, but they do have a Facebook. So I'll put their I'll put the full name in here. If you go on Facebook, they have a they have a Facebook. Great. Well, I'm going to um, turn it over to Avery to present um, the Guild and Ground Cover. Avery, welcome. Good to see you. Hey, from, Star Trek, from Starship Enterprise. Love it. Yes, yes, yes. I'm going to beam down and um, get, speak with you all. Um, great to be here. Good to see your face, Ryan. Good to see everyone. Um, so I think I'm, I'm going to try to 
give you a, an abbreviated um, presentation. Am I able to share screen? You should be able to if you, if you run into problems, let me know. Okay. One second. Okay, so I'm gonna just walk you all through our project right now that um, sort of our flagship project. And then um, talk a little bit about the bigger picture and some questions we're sitting with. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of things have been um, explained as far as the previous two presenters. So there's some stuff I don't need to elaborate on as much. But firstly, my name is Avery Ebron. I'm head of community products and operations at the Guild. We're based in Atlanta. Um, our focus is on closing the racial wealth gap through real estate, entrepreneurship programs, and access to capital. Um, after working with, you know, um, starting out as more of an accelerator, co-living um, focus, and then also working with local uh, neighborhood developers, uh, we sort of pivoted to understanding that the ownership um, and community stewardship of real estate is the key to um, removing a lot of barriers and unlocking um, some power for each of those communities. And so we moved into uh, real estate. And so our current like flagship initiative is ground cover. And the mission is to seed and develop community owned and community controlled real estate models that allow marginalized communities to collectively steward assets in their neighborhoods and build power and self-determination. And so um, what you're seeing here is our building. We acquired it um, last year um, and we are very close to finalizing um, the entire capital stack. The only piece left um, being the senior debt, equity, sub debt, all of that stuff grants um, done, it's closed. So we're looking to close in about one month or two months. And um, I'm gonna mention this again later, but um, break ground and be open early 2023. And so uh, with that said, let me just skip through a couple of things. Um, these are our core objectives for um, our first project. And then I think they will be extrapolated as our ground cover initiative continues. But um, what we, the first project we wanted to um, focus in was in Southwest Atlanta. And one key objective, as you all might know in Atlanta, um, gentrification is a, a big issue and it's being increasingly um, increasing pressure in the Southwest part. Um, and so, Going into that, we knew we wanted to build some permanently affordable housing units. Um, in addition, we wanted to have some commercial space. Uh, we're located in a food desert where uh, there isn't grocery um, options around. And so we tried to figure out a way to package both of those together. We also do it uh, with a community ownership model, uh, which was really difficult um, just for context because mixed use properties provide extra issues um, in terms of financing. Development likes bigger properties now. And so when we went into a property that was about 7,000 square feet, it's a commercial building, we decided to build two, um, two, two floors of housing on top. Um, and the economics of that just aren't great and you're fighting up against it because your costs are higher, but you don't have the scale to cover it and you wanted a permanent affordability. Um, so we decided to do that intentionally because we want to take an incremental approach to development. 
um, work within the framework of the neighborhoods and the communities and not just, you know, build a giant thing, you know, in a community where uh, there's plenty of space and opportunity to add, um, add and work with folks. So uh, we're really work working on building a model and a movement for collective ownership as a pathway to self-determination um, through these, these properties. And one way we're delivering that right now and in the beginning of next year, we should be finishing up is we're gonna have a direct public offering. And so uh, the property that I'm mentioning uh, will be about 500 folks, up to 500 folks will actually come together to collectively govern and own it um, in an investment offering. And the investment minimum is going to be all the way down to $10 and upwards of 100. We're still working on like the upper range of that, but we really want to make it accessible to folks um, so that they can build wealth and then also come together to govern. Another layer that we're adding on to that piece is that we're close to securing some um, financial um, grants and other things to do a full education curriculum with the community. So that would include financial literacy education, investor education, um, political education around issues. In addition, um, working with real estate education um, service providers to really empower folks and share our process, share our learnings, share our ability and capabilities with the folks already there in the community. And so really building that movement, that model, that community power in addition to providing the, you know, the tangible affordable units, um, investment, wealth building vehicles. So that's really what we're trying to execute with these objectives. And so I'll move forward and I'll orient you a little bit to where our project is in Atlanta. So this is the middle of Atlanta right here. This is the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Um, this is sort of the downtown area. This is Midtown. This is I-20 and it really works to divide the city, um, unfortunately. And this is South Atlanta. And so we're down here in Southwest Atlanta. Um, here's another map, but I won't dive too deep into that. Um, I think this one might be a little bit more relatable. And this is a redlining map of Atlanta. Um, I'm sure you all are familiar with that. And so, you know, these areas where there was a lot of disinvestment and just intentional um, bad practice. And so we wanted to really focus on um, securing and holding property in Black communities. Um, because this part of this particular part of Atlanta is experiencing like a lot of pressure from gentrification, especially with um, the Atlanta Beltline, which the city built um, with, I guess, some intention around supporting inclusive development, but it's really been a, a force for gentrification, displacing folks. And so it's bleeding into, you know, the neighborhoods, legacy neighborhoods that have been predominantly Black and pushing folks out. And so again, um, there's kind of at the stage of it's starting um, to gentrify, but it's not fully there yet. So we really try to get in now um, and start this movement, start creating this model, start having some permanently affordable units um, located there. So you all might not know too much about some of these things get not being in Atlanta, but it's a Marge station. This is just a physical topographical overlay of where our project is oriented. And so this is our project right here. This is the core site, it's a commercial owned building, 7,000 square feet. This is undeveloped land. We also acquired this site over here um, in the deal and we were able to get it for a fairly good price. Um, 
And so this is the street level. Um, this is what it looks like currently. This is Capitol View. It's a neighborhood in Southwest Atlanta. And you see here, this is our plans for development. And so we're looking to um, renovate the bottom floor, and then add two floors of um, housing on top. This is, and I know I'm <laughs> providing a lot of detail, but um, this is what the inside will look like. These are the plans. Um, it's still under a little bit of work, but um, we decided to make sure that we had a grocery inside of the site. We also have three small format kitchens and um, the, the core anchor tenant is a local um, BIPOC business that has a, um, a kitchen where smaller um, food brands can come in, get experience, collaborate in space um, because they can't necessarily acquire their own space. And so that same person is going to come in and um, manage this space. And so these kitchens will be populated with small BIPOC businesses um, trying to get a start. And we're trying to keep the pricing such that they can do that and then take advantage of, you know, splitting up the space so it's not too much pressure on them. And they also have that, that backup, that training, that support um, on several levels of their business. And so we're trying to use this space to create a food ecosystem. And so there'd be fresh food and grocery in here and then finished prepared um, goods here. And then in here we have some event space. We also have, plan to have some partitions. So we'll have some office co-working, boardroom space for the community to meet. Um, and also classroom education space. So we're trying to keep it flexible, but also provide what the community has asked for. We've had several sessions. Um, one of our core tenants is to develop with, not for. And so we essentially sat with the community to iterate upon this finished plan, um, product, what you're seeing, to make sure that for even before we break ground, even before we um, start filing, um, finishing permits, the design is collectively done and not just done by us. And in doing so, we were able to uncover some challenges and also just allow them to see the process that the real estate development process for themselves as they're going to become investors in the coming year. Um, I'm going to go a little bit faster because I think I'm running out of time, but this is the top floor. So these are one and two bedroom apartments. There'll be a split between 60 and 80% um, AMI. Uh, we really work hard to lower the AMI. We really want them all at 60 because that's what a neighborhood is. Um, it's just very difficult. Um, our cost went up by over a million dollars due to COVID, you know, due to um, macroeconomic things that are out of our control. But luckily, we've been really um, able to get some additional pretty good terms, good funding, and we're still working. But um, I think and work with a neighborhood that's happy with the layout, the design of the rooms, and also the, the pricing. And so this is also just the back of the building, trying to build in opportunities for folks to just bump into one another and not have it be one of those box developments where, you know, you go in, you can't see anybody. So really trying to build communal space, even on the outside, and also allow for some open bathroom space privately for the tenants. So yeah, this is our pilot project. And like I said, we're very close to the closing on our senior debt and excited. Um, and so I I can stop. Well, I guess we'll take questions at the end. But I'm going to run through this really quickly to show you sort of the process of getting here. 
and then I can talk about like moving forward uh, and I'll try to wrap it up pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, I probably from the last time that you all heard from the Guild, um, this is probably where this timeline will start. But we were able to secure a grant um, to acquire the property and um, it was commercial. So we were able to secure that. Um, so an acquisition supported securing that grant. Uh, we raised a capital stack with both debt and equity. And so, like I said, we have our subordinate debt and our equity secured and um, senior debt to be done in about a month and a half. And so we're using that to fully build out this building. Once the building is built out, um, and this is important, on the front end, we've let all the risk sit with folks who normally um, or have more appetite for risk. And so we haven't done a community ownership risk on the front end. Once the building is completed and constructed and open for operation, it will be transferred into a community stewardship trust, which would be a corporation. And then that will be open for the community to own it at that point. And so we, we're really trying to make sure that they don't bear the risk of this development, given that they really bear the risk of development in general, um, in disrupting their community. And we just really didn't want to have that dynamic going. And so uh, once the building is fully finished, that's when the trust will open and be allowed for folks to come in. And so at that point, we will open up the direct public offering and folks will be entering into the trust. Something I should also mention is that we're working really hard and could use resources around building a reserve. So the class of investors um, that are folks who normally um, have not been able to take risks, who normally um, you know, may not have the risk appetite, may not have the discretionary income. Um, we're building a class so that their investments are backed by reserve, and so they won't lose that money whatsoever. Um, furthermore, the other class with more privileged folks, we've gotten a lot of traction um, to say that a percentage of those shares would go to help buying shares for those legacy resident investors in the other class. And so we're really trying to make sure that um, from a risk standpoint that uh, we're, we're setting them up for success, but, but it's also something that's accessible for the folks in the community that we're targeting, not just from a financial standpoint, but from a perception standpoint. So we can promise or say, hey, you can get into this investment. Um, you're not going to lose your money. We just need you to step up um, and govern it and um, build together. I think that's what we're trying to be able to offer through assembling the capital stack this way. And so just want to say that, um, but yeah, once the building's open, um, the building obviously will um, pay down its um, debt service each year. And then as the community investors purchase shares of the community stewardship trust, um, they will pay back down the equity that was in the building initially. And then there are two ways that they build wealth. Um, is through the appreciation of the share price that they have. So as the building appreciates, um, the value of their investment appreciates, and they will also be receiving an annual dividend. And so those are the two sort of pathways for wealth building, and those things change throughout time. Um, but we're thinking from over 10 to 15 years, the equity will completely have been bought back by the community. And then at that point, we're just buying down debt. And 
Yeah, that that completes everything. So lastly, I just wanted to say um, we're sitting with some questions with this, and they're very difficult questions. But how do we balance permit affordability with community wealth building? Because those two things are sometimes in tension with one another, and that's I think that's part of the, one of the true rigors of what we're doing. And then the other side of it is how do we ensure we center the voices of legacy black residents in the neighborhoods that are already gentrifying? And so how are we through design, um, through education, um, through communication, centering these folks and not simply building something that they will never be able to, um, or they won't in perpetuity be able to enjoy? And so for us, like I said, we're doing a lot of education programming before the building is even built. Um, and that will be made free and available to the community. And um, in addition to that, just providing an asset that they can get into without the pressure of the risk portion and at a low enough price point where they can get in. Um, and uh, inviting them into the development process from day one. Um, showing designs, um, getting uncomfortable with what we're doing, um, rising to the challenges of the questions that they ask in our design, in our EPO, all of those things. Um, those are things that we've been trying to integrate throughout and will continue to. Lastly, I should say that we know projects like this have a really difficult time um, getting financing. And so um, another key thing that we're, we're looking to develop and this is just our pilot, but we want to um, open up a fund that supports these types of developments specifically um, so that it's just not an incremental one by one approach, but there's a large um, there's a large pool of funds dedicated directly for it because there's specific um, in terms of terms and rates and patience and intentionality that the capital partners need to have. And so we're really trying to um, build a fund around that, a ground cover fund. And we're also, and you can look in the um, black paper that I shared, working with collectives of other real estate developers, BIPOC, community wealth building focused folks, trying to raise that money. And so that it can be available to um, all of us as we are all doing this work in our local context. And so that's the other big piece um, of it. And yeah, I think that completes the update. And well, actually, let me just show you one last thing in reference to the Black Pepper. And so for the fund that I was speaking to, um, we're really trying to focus on this capital stack piece right here. So I know a lot of y'all are like focus on the capital stack. And so yeah, um, how can we get to a more equitable capital stack? Um, across the spectrums of, you know, the vertical folks involved and across the different organizations and the project types. And so getting the equitable capital stack available um, to as many folks as possible so that we can unlock a lot of these beautiful projects. So that completes the presentation. And um, if y'all have any questions, let me know. Thank you so much, Avery. Oh, sorry, Ryan, I forgot to mention, we will be able to pay um, the, um, the Forceful Good Fund. We have secured funding for a couple of years. And, um, you know, as we 
these projects continue to go, we have revenues coming from that. So we'll be able to pay uh, for significant investments. Did you say you're raising money and can people invest from this call for our group? So you can't invest today, <laughs> but Q1 of next year. Okay. Yes. Um, and so I'll, I'll share some um, links in the chat uh, where you can get in contact and get involved with the different efforts. Well, also, if you want to invest directly into our pilot project, yes, you can. Um, our investment portion in the capital stack, we're, we're done with that, but um, I'd love to hear and listen to any folks that um, have any interest. So I just put my contact information in the chat and where you can, um, where you can um, find us. Thanks, Avery. Yeah, anyone, any questions for Avery? Any questions from investors or donors? You can put it in the chat or... Awesome presentation, Avery. I love it, uh, kind of yeah. like Milam and CSU. I love this emergent quality going from kind of a co-housing, co-living, and then incubating cooperative enterprises and supporting them with technical services to community wealth building through asset ownership, commercial and residential, doing it the right way, very sensitive to the community needs and what's community determined, allowing for accessible participation down to like the $10 a month or even $10 investment level. Love it. And just being really thoughtful about the design of both the capital stack and how you're approaching it. Awesome, awesome work. I love what Guild Ground Cover is doing. Very, very excited by your innovations. Thank you. One other shout out for Avery. <clears throat> he used to work at Clearinghouse CDFI, which is our largest investor in the Force Forget Fund. And so Avery was instrumental in helping us actually get the Force Forget Fund itself to be successful. And now he's, he's on the other end working for an investee and you know, building what's the next, what's next in our next economy. So appreciate, appreciate you, Avery. Thank you all. Thank you for the platform and um, the funds have been great and, and critical. So um, any, hopefully, hopefully this continues. It's leveraged so greatly. Um, I think in 10 years, you, you'll look up and be amazed. Okay, well, um... I'm going to sort of move on to our, the next sort of last uh, 15 plus minutes, um, try and get everyone out of here on time because it's Friday and who wants to be going over in meetings on Fridays. So um, I'm going to quickly, you know, we, we didn't really talk about this that much um, in, uh, in, in past um, meetings, but it's important to just say that in addition to the investees, you know, like the three amazing presentations you all saw today, the Force for Good Fund has had ripples and impact at the sort of larger systems level. So many of you remember that the Ford Foundation funded a study with North Carolina State um, in partnership with us at Lyft Economy on the sort of 
there's both, there's two papers that Ford Foundation studied. There was a Force for Good Fund, How Investors Can Better Support Women and People of Color Owned Businesses that was um, distributed into the sort of foundations community and philanthropic community and impact investment community. But also there's a second paper um, that North Carolina State presented at like the Academy of Management and, and academic circles around exploring the systemic impact of investing in women and people of color owned businesses, uh, multiple case study approach. So um, that was one sort of larger ripple that is just uh, as a result of the fund. Um, we also wanted to point out that, uh, you know, RSF, there's, there's a few other pieces that the Force for Good Fund has touched on. RSF has um, shared capital collaborative, or I forget the exact name, but they have a women's capital collaborative and a racial justice capital collaborative. And they really worked, they were really interested in the Force for Good Fund and we gave them a lot of insights um, about how our fund worked and it, it really sort of helped them um, launch some of the, the sort of newer funds that they have in the last two years. Clearinghouse, which Aver used to work for, um, you know, one way that they were able to support Native American natural foods, which makes the Tonka Bar, was they couldn't make any more loans or investments into Native American natural foods, so they invested in the fund, and then we were able to invest in Native American natural foods, so sort of created impact on that level. The Katali Fund, um, Amaka Agbo and um, Regan Pritzker and the, the Pritzker family's sort of high impact fund. Um, we talked to them along with Seed Commons early on about what we were doing and sort of helped um, influence and sort of share advice on you know, what was working there. And then at SOCAP, we've had the chance to speak a couple times about you know, the Force for Good Fund and just, uh, you know, for example, I was on a panel with Amaka and Kate Poole, um, and I think uh, Tiffany, um, also from Cordata, and it was called Why Market Rate Returns Are Perpetuating White Supremacy. And like this was at SOCAP. Uh, and so I think that the Force for Good Fund has also been sort of a platform of like, we really need to talk about some of these things. Um, and so we, we thought it would just be helpful in addition to some of the investee impact to give you all as investors and donors, and maybe um, you know other folks who are sort of um, interested in this, just like some of the wider lens of impact that this fund has has been created. And we don't. I, I wish um, we had more time. I mean, if any of you have other impacts, I would just be curious. Like, if there's two or three other impacts that folks have seen that are maybe not that haven't been listed, because you all know better than than me and you know kevin and i created this but you know what uh, created this presentation <laughs> not the fun jenny was definitely involved in that um but uh you all maybe have better insight into other impacts and i'm just curious is there any other impacts that stand out to you on like a systems level that we should at least highlight for folks Oh, James. I just say, yeah. Ryan, oh, yeah, um, I, I don't think it's an accident that there are a lot of funds being set up. I mean, every time I turn around, I hear about a new fund. Um, and I think that you guys were innovators, you know, in, in that regard, in trying to create something that was really challenging the system and, um, you know, trying to push the boundaries of what how things are done and what's done. 
And I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that was, that was an innovation, you know, so that in itself has, I think, been an impact that people have seen what's possible, you know, um, and folks are trying to emulate and do similar things, different things, whatever, but definitely to emulate what you guys have kind of led the path on, you know. Thanks, Neelam. Um, Jenny. Yeah, I so appreciate what you just said, Neelam. I think that's really true. I think when we first started the Force for Good Fund, we we didn't want to start something that we could just support someone else who was doing something the same, but we couldn't find anyone else who was doing the same thing. So we that's why we started it. And um, I do agree. I think more and more people are starting to realize, oh, you know, here's a model that that can work. And um, another thing that is really helpful also in my work, my, my main work is working with entrepreneurs who are raising money, sometimes from large numbers of investors. And the Force for Good Fund has about 135 investors. And we have to manage that and um, make sure we're communicating with investors. And we have investors in other countries and we had to figure out, oh, we have to withhold some, you know, a portion of the payments and send that to the IRS. And so it's just been a huge learning process that because, you know, I love learning by doing and we have learned so much by doing it. And we love sharing all of our learnings with anyone who's interested so that they might not make some of the same mistakes. It took us a few years to kind of get our systems in good shape. And um, so, yes, I think that's a really great point. Thank you so much. Uh, and I just wanted to ask, sorry, just really quickly, I wanted to ask, um, and then I'll shut up so the folks can say stuff. Mm -hmm. the, the, the things that you shared about the impacts and, um, and some of the, the things that have been shared in the chat, can you share those with us? Um, sure. You know, in, because I think it would be great as as investees, I would actually like to share some of that information as a link on a website. You know, people should know all the multiple ways that, because if you impact this and we're an investee, then that's that impact is kind of being double, tripled Absolutely. all the time. Yeah. Thanks, Neelam. I, I would say, um... I, definitely the upstream, like other funds, other people with money. Hey, we can do this. Um, even being in CDFI, seeing how it pushed the thinking and um, the possibility um, and just engaging in it and making that decision to, to get into it was a, um, a step forward, a practical and ideological step forward that that's even in the organization that I was in, I could see how it, it started in, in things in a direction that now millions and millions of dollars are going towards. So that are definitely upstream, but I would say downstream too, with the, um, at least for, for my knowledge with investees, um, just the technical assistance, the support, the thought leadership, um, bringing in all of that, um, not just the capital, but that bringing those conversations and expertise into those, into the project in enabling them to move forward and um, grow and develop and um, find out how to break beyond where they are. I think that is the other thing too that's really important. And as you know, these projects grow and scale, I think that that was a critical um, pivotal point for some good fun coming in and providing that. Um, personally, I've been on calls that shifted our ability to move forward and provided like key insights that unlock millions of dollars for us to now be actually 
um, providing, you know, permanently affordable housing, um, opportunity for people to own something where they live. Um, but we wouldn't have gotten there, not just without the capital, but with the so the expertise and the knowledge and um, the sitting and the the development um, part of it too. So I do want to say that's a huge impact and um, really grateful for it. And that's not something that I think any other um, entity might have provided in the way that it was provided and that is unique. And I, I would really hope that it would continue. Thank you, Avery. James. Yeah, you know, great question. Um, inviting the reflection. Uh, I think Force for Good Fund was, I mean, just looking back like years ahead of its time, in terms of bringing the focus to racial justice to BIPOC um, entrepreneurs and owners building wealth in those communities. Um, obviously, we've seen a huge surge in that space, you know, in the last like year or two, but like you were there like five years ago. And, um, you know, that's, you know, I think it, it helps spark conversations, build the fields, you know, create all these connections um, that, you know, are, are bearing fruit today, both in the fund and outside the fund. Um, and yeah, and then you look at some of the investees, like, you know, I think I, I personally feel like the focus on replicable models um, is, is what, something I do as well. And, uh, you know, to see EB, PREC, um, you know, taking off and thriving. And, um, you know, I've, I learned about them through Force for Good Fund. Um, and now looking at, you know, we're doing due diligence with them directly um, and, you know, to support them in their next, rant, you know, round of growth. So, um, you know, and, and just hearing about the other uh, amazing uh, investees of the funds today. I mean, the Guild sounds, they're all just, the ones we've heard today certainly are doing great. I mean, I think this is a remarkable call. Um, and you guys, I think you all deserve credit in finding them early and supporting them and, and getting them going. And, you know, you can't take credit for obviously <laughs> much, you know, as they keep going. But, you know, I think that um, I would I would just reflect that the field building and the early connections and the early mover um, that you guys kind of sparked a lot of stuff. And, you know, please take credit for that. So I give you credit for it. Well, we definitely stand on the shoulders of, of other giants who have been doing this work, especially black and brown entrepreneurs who have been like advocating for this and the other, you know, so we're, I think there's also hesitancy of like taking too much credit, but like we receive it and we like want to recognize that it's like, it's shared, you know, it's, it's like shared credit. Um, Kevin, I should probably kick to you um, for the last piece. Yeah, I'll, I, I want to share um, some of the requests that investors and donors have asked about the performance of the portfolio. I do want to call out Neelam, though, like Ryan said, credit due to those entrepreneurs and leaders. Uh, we met Neelam at an event. It was one of the Bali turn common future uh, leadership events. And I mean, Neelam was, you know, just totally in sync and saying this is what's needed in the world and describing the force for good fund. So again, folks like ne Neelam are way ahead of, if, if force for good fund is ahead of the curve, the entrepreneurs are just 
way ahead of the curve. So I just wanted to call that out to make sure it's clear that that's where the credit is due. Um, I did want to share, so some of the, yeah, the kind of perfunctory stuff. Uh, we're in the middle, so we, we, we haven't yet, uh, the collections, so th this is dated from last uh, repayment. Uh, the next repayments due from investees will be 1231. Uh, they have a few uh, at the close of the year, they have uh, you know a month or whatever, 30 days to, to make that payment. We've talked to each of the investees. Um, I'll get to that in a moment about what their status would be. Um, and some investors are donating their interest. Want to continue to thank those investors who are supporting that. And that's going to be important. So I'm going to go to this next slide here and kind of I'll call this the sober slide. Um, as uh, some investors have asked us, just they know as we've been disclosing that we run multiple scenarios about six or seven different scenarios tracking investee progress. And some asked, what's the term? What's the, the edge scenario? This is what, what I call the multiple loss scenario um, where collections kind of come in. Um, this is the most conservative, you could say, uh, where the fund doesn't work out for the investors um, or the donors per, pursuant to Arno's kind of provocation. Uh, this is where we see some losses. Spotlight Girls, as was announced, I think, on the last call or maybe the call before that, has officially announced that they will not be making uh, payments to their obligation to the, the loan. Uh, Ten Power is having a lot of challenges in Haiti, as example. Preserve Farm Kitchen actually has broken even, uh, operating break even. Um, but in this scenario, we show them not being able to make their payments pursuant to their obligation. Same with the Winja. COVID has been been rough on a lot of the investees, not all of them. Um, but in this, this if you call this the worst case scenario, I suppose there, there, there could, just full disclosure, there could be a worse worst case scenario. Uh, but in the ones that we're tracking, I call this the multiple loss scenario. And that would show the fund returning 80 cents on the dollar for every dollar that was invested. The loss reserve would kick in and it would still only almost get the money back that was invested, 94 cents on the dollar. But this is the term, this is the, the edge scenario of the multiple loss scenario. Currently, uh, we have a couple of years of collections to, to see what happens. Um, showing the next scenario here, I call this the plausible scenario. Um, still not as rosy as our minimum target return uh, of an average annual return projection of 2.5%. Uh, so this is, uh, but this is the scenario that I, like, I, we call the plausible scenario. It does show a number of losses. Uh, it shows Preserve Farm Kitchen making some de minimis payments. They may be able to do more than this. It's an, uh, highly uncertain right now. Uh, this plausible scenario does show our table being able to honor its obligations. That's an uncertainty. Um, there were some deferrals due to COVID. Um, Awinja is not a total loss, but it would be a, uh, a partial recovery. We can go into the details of any of these, either one-on-one -on -one or if there's questions on this call. But uh, certain investors asked us uh, for kind of what scenarios are we tracking. I can also share the spreadsheet of the seven different scenarios that we have running. Um, there is a, there's one scenario uh, that's an optimistic scenario that shows a little bit better than this. Um, but I would call this as kind of the plausible scenario 
the maybe even a, a likely scenario, um, though it certainly could be in between this one and the loss scenario. So I wanted to disclose those um, and see if there's any questions that come pursuant to that. Any questions? Apologies for the background noise again. Um, what what do you do when a project announces it's not going to honor yeah, so it's a great question, Neelam. Um, I mean, Je Jenny can answer from the legal obligation side of the nonprofit community ventures. Go ahead, Jenny, do you want to? Yeah, so I mean, we always wanted this to be very um, supportive, patient, non-extractive capital. So if a company just doesn't make it or they're really struggling, we don't want to go into like evil kind of, you know, try to get your firstborn collections mode. Um, at some point we have to just say, we need to just let it go. However, legally we are allowed to at least try <laughs> to collect. I mean, we are required to at least try to collect. So we do the best we can to collect, but you know, we don't hire a professional um, bill, you know, bill collector, bill, uh, debt collector. Yeah, that, that's good too. I mean, I imagine that would be the case. I wonder, I mean, is there a way, and I'm asking this as just someone who's involved now in sort of funds at the national level with e-farthing, just there's a lot of this kind of go, going on. Um, just like what is, is there a way to try and offset those kinds of situations by, um, with investors who might be willing to cover the shortfall? Like, is that something that you guys have, I mean, I don't know, I know we're running out of time and we don't have to talk about this right now. I'm just curious about these things, but yeah. I think it's a great question, Neelam, and, and Jenny might be able to um, respond to certain things. Oh, she has to jump off at the uh, half hour here. Um, you know, Neelam, we, we've discussed some, you know, scenarios. I don't know how feasible they are, but um, there are, uh, well, there already is example, one investor in the Force for Good Fund who made the decision to donate their principal um and donate it to either technical assistance or to cover the loss reserve or both um and so that uh, is an example of something that could be turned from a voluntary one investor volunteering to a request uh to certain investors that could make the retail investors whole for example um and try and honor the minimum target return so that could turn from a like hey it happened to like a request um that's one scenario another scenario um that i've brainstormed but i don't know how feasible it is with 135 or 137 investors in the fund would be uh the couple of the investees um, because of covid especially have kind of said if i had another year or two we probably could honor the complete obligation and the way we structured the force for good fund with with the start date and kind of the end date of the fund um, by the, the fund agreement would make that not possible or it would if it if an investee paid after the fact um, you know the, the agreement between community ventures and the investors ends at a particular maturity date when the last revenue share occurs so there could be a process to amend that you know i've, I've asked jenny about this in brainstorm mode what if we 
requested investors to, uh, if there's an amendment to the agreement that enables another year or two for certain investees to, you know, extend the patient window of the of the fund. Um, that's another option um, that that could be there. Theoretically, for the, especially for the retail investors, meaning we've had, you know, we have four hundred thousand. The first tranche, first four hundred thousand dollars, was a, a a mix of, you know, high net worth individuals and also just um, people putting in their retirement money and, and and retail investors, people who are not high net worth individuals, right? And so there is potentially uh, some. I'm speculating about like and talking to Jenny about how can, is there any way we can try and honor the obligation of the minimum target return to the retail investors? We didn't structure it that way from the beginning. Uh, we treated all the investors the same, same revenue share agreement, but is there, you know, it, is there some kind of amendment that could be made? It may be that that's all too hard and too difficult and, you know, maybe um, for first for good fund to really do that. But I think those are, those are some brainstorm conversations that I'm having with Jenny and maybe some of the investors might have on this call might have ideas that I'm just not even um, having access to. So um, I'm really open to creative thinking. But thank you for, for sharing. And, and I just want to say, you know, as an investee, I mean, we want to see this be successful because it's, it's important that innovations like this are successful, right? Because if they're not, then it just kind of plays into all the, you know, the naysaying about about such things so we want that to happen and so in terms of the second scenario that you mentioned if there's anything that we can do to because covid i mean covid has been something that nobody could ever foresee right it's been a global you know uh, it's, it's devastated economies and all kinds of stuff right so so i mean it seems to me that that second scenario should be doable and if as investees we can play a role in that in kind of making a case for why you know, they should renegotiate with you those terms and extend the time, then that that's something we'd, we'd be down to help with or get involved in, in any way we can. Yeah, and, and to keep to keep in conversation ongoing on any other ideas that might come up or other, other ways that, you know, we can work together to make sure that this, this you know, this happens in the way we want it to. Thank you, Neelam. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I, I'm very, very open. We're very open to the dialogue and, and to and any creative thoughts about how to figure this out. I think I think we all on this call, for example, and people listening to this call share the notion that we want it to be known as a successful thing that investing in women-owned, person-of-color-owned enterprises that are focused on important issues like community wealth building and uh, authentic uh, regenerative development um, a regenerative enterprise that that's important work and that uh, capital should flow that way without expecting extractive returns um, and so i think everybody's sympathetic to that idea and we want it to succeed and i think that uh, whereas that's true i think then figuring out the mechanics um, i'm very open to doing whatever work um, is needed to try and uh, make that story true of course we can't force the story to be true because like you said there's extraordinary circumstance with covid and um, you know, uh, as everybody who came into the fund knows, certain enterprises are going to succeed, certain ones are not, um, for any number of reasons, um, including extraordinary events. So, um, I, you know, humbly, I think we're, we're kind of open to creative thinking, really appreciative of the um, 
solidarity, both with investees, investors, and donors. Um, and uh, anybody who has very particular concerns about the scenarios that I just shared today, please reach out to me and uh, I'd be happy to walk you through uh, the calculus of how we, we arrived at the, the projections and the, any details about any particular uh, investee conversation. And if anybody has creative ideas, uh, certainly the, a number of the stakeholders in the Force for a Good Fund are leading edge innovators, Arno, James, you know, a lot of the people on this call, um, uh, certainly the investees. So if, uh, if anybody has ideas that I just don't have access to, I'm, I'm very open to it. Well, I think I think Jenny and Ryan had to drop in. I actually do too. I'm super embarrassed, but I have another call that I am a little bit late for. Um, any uh, last uh, words or thoughts? I'll be sure to send the chat. Uh, the, uh, the video recording will go out, um, and uh, both to all participants, including investees, Neelam. So we'll have all those resources uh, shared for everybody. And uh, thank you all for your continued support for what the purpose of the Force for Good Fund is and the Force for Good Fund itself. I really appreciate you all and all of your commitment and dedication to an economy that works for everyone with no one left out. All right, have a, have a good weekend, you all. Be safe, be well.